by entering uninvited, which was a, a death sentence under Persian Empire, to enter the king's presence without invitation. And so she stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. And so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. So this was a means by which she was invited into his presence and she acknowledged uh, his grace uh, in, in allowing her to come in uninvited. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it will be given to you up to half the kingdom. All right. So everybody can just go <sighs> for Queen Esther. Because up to this point in time, she doesn't know whether she's going to have his favor, what he's going to do, off with her head or uh, impale her on a stake, which was the Persian way of killing people or executing them. And, and so he comes in and she was uncertain as to what would be his uh, attitude toward her, though, because though she was the queen, uh, it had been 30 days since she had been in the presence of the king. She didn't know if that was just whatever might be going on related to the king or he's displeased with her. And so here is he's obviously in a perky mood. Well, can you talk about Persian kings as being perky? I don't know, but he's in a happy mood here. And he asks her, he knows that she has risked her life by coming into his presence this way. So she, he knows that she isn't just popped into the office, um, that she has a request. And it must be significant for her to put her life in danger in this way. And so he asks her what her request is and then tells her ahead of time that he will grant it all the way up to anything and everything up to the point of allowing her to have his position in the kingdom. So uh, this is, uh, you know, not door number one, door number two, or door number three. It's all the doors and the whole Persian Empire that she can ask for. And so the king gives her this invitation and, and basically a, a invitation to pray big, you know, ask whatever you want. And so Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. So she invites uh, the king, Ahasuerus, and also Haman to come to this banquet. She does not address the issue uh, while he is in that public setting. This is tremendous wisdom on her part. And without a doubt, the Holy Spirit involved. So he's got a lot of attendants in the room. Um, he that, that may very some of them may very well be strong supporters of Haman, who she's about to expose. And if she kind of blurts this whole thing out in this public setting, it would uh, could be very uncomfortable for him. Put him in an awkward place where he's making a decision in public rather than being able to deal with it privately. And and so she's going to invite him uh, to a more private place with uh, with Haman to accuse him face to face. So tremendous wisdom in how she sets things up. And then the king said he accepts the uh, uh, the request. I mean, it was considerably less than half the kingdom. And so uh, she, he said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. And so the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, um, Haman has to be thinking, Blue skies, nothing but blue sky. To be invited to be the sole guest at a meal with the king and queen, the most powerful man in the world at that time, was a indescribable honor. So he has to just feel his whole future is secure. Uh, everything is great. He's not only loved by the king, but also by the queen. And so this is going to really, uh, you know, puts him in that uh, kind of thinking when really nothing uh, could be further from uh, the truth. And things are going to turn uh, pretty quickly, which reminds me of another song. What a difference a day makes. <laughs> 24 little hours. Things are going to move quick for this man. But it all appears to be something different uh, at this point. And so Esther then answered, 
at the banquet of wine, rather, at verse 6, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? And it will be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Same invitation. And then Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king said. I will make my request known. There is considerable bravery on her part. Uh, you know, men like Ahasuerus, they weren't used to be, they're men of business. Get, Get this thing going. I've got a lot on my plate and a lot of important things that I'm doing. I'm uh, overseeing 127 provinces that uh, reach all the way from uh, Africa I- into uh, India. And so I can't be doing these banquets every day. And, and so, but she makes the request for a banquet the following day. Now, what she know, all it appears, we aren't given an explanation in the passage. All she knows is this is what is in her thinking to do. God is very much involved in all of this. She, how much she realizes of it, she realizes that we don't really know. But God is up to a very big picture here. He's not only going to rescue the Jews from destruction, but he also wants to put Mordecai, her cousin and kind of her guardian, into the position of Haman, make him the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire. And and so she's going to ask for one thing. God wants to do exceeding abundantly above all that she could ask or think at this point. She's going to settle for less than what he wants to do. And so he wants another day before she uh, makes her request. And as we're going to see when we get into chapter 6 here, that it was all in order that God might cause a little insomnia to fall upon the king and cause him to then honor uh, Mordecai. And so this was the request that she made. And, uh, and, and then Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. So he leaves and says, wow, I got to be in the, you know, a feast with the king and the queen all alone. And they're going to do this again tomorrow. And as he's making his way from the palace to his home, he saw Mordecai in the king's gate. And Mordecai did not stand or tremble before him. So this guy not only isn't bowing down to Haman at this point, why would you? He's already uh, decreed the death of you and your people. Uh, Mordecai doesn't even get up out of his chair, doesn't even acknowledge him. And so he was filled with indignation against Mordecai, ruined a whole day for him. And nevertheless, Haman, he restrained himself and went home and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, uh, Zeresh. And when Haman, then Haman told them uh, of his great riches, his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him. So this guy has an eye problem, doesn't he? I mean, my all the way through to a sickening degree and how he had advanced above all the officials and the uh, servants of the king. So I don't know how everybody's sitting there, you know, making their way through this brag fest. And moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come and dine with the king, to uh, uh, come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. And so this is, again, it's just a tremendous thing to have happen. He couldn't wait to get home and to report it. And yet... He said, all of this avails me nothing. All of his joy is completely destroyed as long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate, uh, you know, disrespecting him. So, again, we see the power of malice to uh, destroy a person's uh, joy. What it can just this gigantic mountain of things over here and it's completely wiped out by a little pebble of malice or ill will toward another person here. And then his wife, uh, Zeresh, this is just a wonderful woman to be married to. And all of his friends, they said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, 75 feet in the air. And then 
in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, and then you can go merrily with the king to the banquet, having solved your Mordecai problem. So, a perky little gal, again, the use of the word perky, uh, uh, but she takes in... Uh, and, and this is the, her suggestion, a solution to the problem here, is have him killed prior to the feast tomorrow so that at least you can enjoy one out of the two feasts. Now, it talks about a gallows here, and it may very well be that they put together a gallows for the hanging of Mordecai. The Hebrew language also allows for basically a great gigantic stake to be put up. And um, that's how the Persians' capital punishment was enacted by the Persians. They would simply impale you on a stake, or you would be killed and your body would be impaled upon a stake for public view. And so this is more likely what was happening rather than, um, you know, a a gallows and how we understand a hanging uh, to take place. So she suggested make a 75 feet high so that, Everyone, when they say, I mean, imagine a pole 75 feet high in the air and a man impaled on the end of it. Uh, You could see that from all over the city, obviously. And the idea was to communicate to the whole city, this is what happens to people who disrespect Haman. So his ego is big time involved in all of this. And and he's uh, delighted with the suggestion it pleased him, and so he uh, gave an order that the gallows uh, be made. Then in chapter 6, we're told that that night the king could not uh, sleep. So you think you're the only one that had that problem? You know, he's had the problem too. The most powerful man in the world, all the money in the world, all the everything in the world. And who knows what he would have been willing to pay for a good night's sleep. But this is a supernatural inability to sleep that's going on here. God's not letting him sleep. So we look at the whole world today and we see, oh, they've got this thing over here and this big ruler over here and then this guy over here and he's got so much power and are they going to push the button over here and then this and that and we wonder, you know, and can, you know, have sleepless nights of our own related to uh, the leaders of the world and sometimes their corruption and ruthlessness. You say, how in the world can God get through to them? God can just give them a sleepless night. Here's the most powerful man in the whole wide world. And, and God wants to get through to this guy. And all he does is he just takes the guy's ability to sleep. It's just so, so simple for God. He can't sleep. So what is, it he, is he going to do? So he commanded one of his attendants to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. I mean, if that wouldn't put you to sleep... Send for the accountant. I want to hear, you know, drone on endlessly about the history of the Persian Empire or whatever the historians. Of course, I like history, so I would stay up all night reading it. But so he brings in what is probably about the most tedious information to see if he could nod off and it doesn't happen. Or maybe he's just um, he is. Uh, unable to sleep, and he figures uh, what some of us do, and that is you just say, well, I might as well get some work done. So he decides to uh, get some work done. Now, and all of this is the fingerprints of God. Again, in the book of Esther, there's no mention of God by name, and yet he's obvious all the way through the passage once we realize what's going on in the book. It wasn't like this guy didn't have options when he couldn't sleep. He could bring in musicians. He could bring in one of hundreds of concubines. He could order the chefs to make whatever meal he wanted. He could do anything anything in the whole wide world he could do. And yet he calls for the historical record of the policies of the Persians to be read to him. And there's a reason for it. God is just sovereignly, providentially at work in, in all of this. And so it was found they're doing the reading, and, it was, and they found that it was written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands or to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And we read about that earlier in the book. So what are the odds that the Persian historian is going to grab the book off the shelf that has to do with Mordecai, 
uh, informing on these two men and saving the king from uh, assassination. And yet that's exactly what's happening. God just pachunk, pachunk, pachunk. I call this the Lord's fingerprints. He leaves his fingerprints all over the situation. Sometimes we don't see it and recognize it till later. But that's what's going on. And then the king, he asked, he said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now, under the Persian, uh, the historically related to the Persians and the Persian Empire, they were very, very good at rewarding loyalty toward the Persian Empire. It was always noted and it was always rewarded in order to encourage loyalty toward the empire. So here he, when he says what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this, he's expecting an answer to this. And, and the fact that nothing was bestowed upon him is going to be a shock to him. This is a, a tremendous oversight. But again, God is at work in all of it because God has a bigger plan uh, that he's, he's working on here. And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And so the king said, who is in the court? Who has showed up for work early this morning into the palace? And now Haman had just entered into the outer court of the king's palace. So what are the odds of this? So no reward was given to him when reward ought to have been given to him. And it was the custom of the Persians. And then who's the first person to show up for work in the morning? Not under a motivation of, all right, I want to make the Persian Empire the greatest empire in the history of the world and all this kind of thing. He showed up early because he wants to pitch the idea of impaling Mordecai on a stick uh, before the king's schedule got too busy. So that's his motivation for coming in, uh, in early. But again, God is at work in the whole situation, ruling it and overruling it for his purposes. And so Haman came in to the palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So that was all prepared now for the death of Mordecai. So we get that over and I can enjoy this banquet today. And the king's servants said to him, Haman is here and he's standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. And so Haman came in and the king said to him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And, of course, Haman, so self-absorbed, he thought in his heart, who would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> so he thinks, wow, what an open door. He is allowing me to write my own ticket in terms of the king showing honor to me. So he's going to just add layer upon layer upon layer of you know, how a king could lavish favor uh, upon someone in his uh, someone thinking that it's all going to happen to him. And so Haman answered the king and he said, for the man whom the king delights to honor. Wink, wink. Let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn and a horse on which the king is written, which has a royal crest placed on its head. And then let this robe and this horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man uh, with, uh, that he may array the, mm, I see, I lost my place. he may array the man whom the king delights to honor, and then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, this shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So, I mean, this guy's just got the whole thing worked out. Just coming right to his mind, too, you know. And the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you've suggested, and do it for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. He just had to go into shock. <laughs> So this is, he comes in the door, and he is going to pitch the death of Haman, to the, uh, of Mordecai, to the king. And before he, five minutes into the day now, this is what he's going to do for Mordecai uh, in 
you know, the exact opposite of anything that he had planned. And so Haman, he took the robe, he took the horse, he arrayed Mordecai, and he led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And he's repeating this all the way through the city of Shosh. Shushan and talk about eating crow. This was just an absolute humiliation for him. And afterwards, you can imagine Mordecai sitting on that horse. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't know the full picture of what's happening, but he realizes, okay, God's got to be at work here. And after Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, Morning. It was like he went to a funeral and his head was covered. This, the deepness of his humiliation, of his pride. And when Haman told his wife uh, Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, it's not going to stop here, Buster, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but he will sure, you will surely fall before him. And, they, and, and again, the Persians were highly superstitious people, and they looked and they said, this is an omen, that you are not going to be successful against this man, but he is going, you are not going to defeat him. He is going to defeat uh, you. And that much they understood correctly. And while he's still, they're still talking with him, he's still trying to process all of this, time for the banquet, the king's eunuchs came, and they hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Uh, probably didn't have much of an appetite at this particular point in time. And so the king and Haman went to dine with King, uh, Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, so he's probably pretty curious at this point, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. All of a sudden, whoa, whoa, you know, warning, warning, warning. The warning bells are going off here. What? For we, speaking of herself and her people, uh, she says, we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had just been sold as male and female slaves, I would never have approached you. Uh, I'd have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. In other words, if my people in your kingdom weren't uh, scheduled to be executed, but merely to be sold as slaves into other parts of the world, that would still represent a significant loss to the kingdom of Persia. As is the loss of godly people uh, to any nation that loses them and produces an exodus of God's people out of that nation. That nation is far poorer uh, as a result uh, of that. And so she said, if it had anything, anything less than annihilation, then I would never have approached you. And so King Ahasuerus, he answered and he said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Uh, Sitting right here. Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? So he's not putting two plus two together at this point. The decree that he signed and he allowed and the Jews and her. He doesn't he doesn't know that she is a Jewess. And so he's confused. He wants elaboration. And I wonder how much uh, Haman was getting at that particular moment in time. Uh, You know, So anyway, Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So again, she wanted to accuse him face to face. There he's standing. If he had any appetite before this at all, he has lost it now. And so Haman, in an instant now, he was terrified before the king and the queen. And so, again, everything just turns so quickly on him. Things can change so fast in, in life. God can bring someone down very, very quickly. 
And so this was the accusation that was made. The king then arose in his wrath. This was not a man you wanted to displease, let alone fill him with wrath. So in his wrath, he arose from the banquet of wine. He goes out into the palace garden and probably... Uh, not, not so much to cool down. He's not that concerned about that as the most powerful man in the world. But it's probably all he's trying to wrap his mind around what's just happened. And he realizes that he signed a decree that had been proposed to him by Haman without identifying the people that he was sending to annihilation. And now he realizes his part in a very foolish thing and how he has sentenced his own queen to death as a result of this. So he's guilty for his own part, but Haman was very, very skillful in his manipulation and how he presented things and what facts he added and facts he left out in order to secure this decree. He is he's getting his mind around all of this and and trying to figure out what is what's the implications of what I've just heard here. And meanwhile, in the palace, Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life. <clears throat> How many times you see it through history? Powerful, powerful men. Positions of great power in the world, and they kill hundreds of people, thousands of people, millions of people. And then when they get caught and captured alive, they squeal for their life like a little baby. Big tough guys when they've got the power, but now when push comes to shove, And now it's their life on the line. Here's this guy that can call for the death of 15 million men, women, and children and not even blink. And yet he considers his life uh, to be something so valuable that it ought to be spared. Over and over again, the same thing goes on. So now his life is different than everybody else's life. He's pleading for it, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. (laughs) He knew the king well enough. And when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, uh, events as they were unfolding, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And so it now appears that he is trying to assault the queen he, as the king walks in. And the king said, will he also assault the king while I'm in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face with uh, some kind of a sack or something, which was all of the attendants were there. They knew what was going on. This is just preliminary uh, to his execution. And now uh, Harbono, one of the eunuchs, he said to the king, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high which Haman made for Mordecai, who stood, who spoke good for the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. So he wanted he builds it in front of his own house, this guy. And so then the king said, uh, hang him on it. So this thing that he had built for the death of Mordecai now becomes uh, the site of his death. Uh, justice is rarely so poetic as this in the fallen world, but it is nice when we get a chance to see it every so often this way. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he, might, uh, that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's wrath was subsided. And then on that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. And uh, so uh, Haman had sought to confiscate all of the property of the Jews, and so now all of his property, all of his uh, very significant wealth is given over to to uh, Queen Esther. And so this was given to her. And Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told how he was related to her. So we're a blood relationship. And so the king then took off his signet ring, which he had taken uh, from Haman. He gave it to Mordecai and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So a lot happens here in verse two. Haman is uh, Mordecai is promoted into the position of Haman. 
Again, this is significant what God wanted to do. He wants to protect the lives of the Jews. He's going to take care of that. But he also wanted uh, the, the queen and the prime minister of the Persian Empire at this time uh, to be Jewish. And so uh, the, this, is, uh, this is accomplished. And then with this great kind of estate and wealth and everything that belonged to Haman, uh, Esther, she didn't want to, you know, be bothered with the details of that. And so Mordecai was appointed to uh, oversee that. And now Esther uh, spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. So. The death of Haman hasn't done anything to solve the decree that went out for the destruction of the Jews at the end of that year. So and a decree of the Medes and the Persians could not be altered once a decree was given. I mean, it's, it's silly to have a, a means of establishing law that you cannot change a bad law. But that's the way that it was with him. So this law had been enacted, and now there's, they can't just say, uh, we're going to retract that law, but somehow the survival of the Jews has to be uh, assured in some way. And so this is the problem. The Haman problem's been solved on an individual level, but now the problem of rescuing the Jews from this sentence of death. And so the king then held out the golden scepter toward Esther, Esther arose and stood before the king, and this is her uh, proposal uh, and request for a new decree to be given to save the Jews. And she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, uh, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come upon my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? And so King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman. And they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. And he, and he said, you yourselves now write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name. Seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot uh, one can no one can revoke. So he basically says, you're right. We do. There is a dilemma here. There is a problem. I will leave it to you to uh, put together a decree as best as you know how that will uh, circumvent and undermine the previous uh, decree. And who better to give that authority to uh, than, than uh, to Jewish people themselves? And so the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of uh, Sivan on the uh, 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews and the satraps, the governors and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language and to the Jews in their own script and language. And so they send this decree out and we're going to see a little bit more about what the decree said, but it is sent out now. And and the timing of this that's given to us in verse nine, the Jews are going to receive this new decree in their provinces nine months before the annihilation date. So a very significant time to prepare uh, for uh, the you know, ramifications of the first decree. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and he sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal steeds, bred from swift steeds. So these are royal horses, bred from swift steeds. And by these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and to protect themselves. So the second degree decree allowed the Jews the right of self-defense of themselves, their wives, uh, their children and their families to destroy, kill and annihilate all the forces of any people or province 
who would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. And on one day in all of the provinces of Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And so now the Jews are given the right of self-defense. In the face of this attack on that day, the king could not, in light of the law of the Medes and the Persians, uh, retract the original, uh, you know, document. And so this was the best that could be done under the circumstances. And so a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. And the couriers who rode on royal horses, they went out, they hastened, uh, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was also issued in Shushan, the citadel, uh, the capital. And so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, uh, and a, a great crown of gold, a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. We remember earlier in the account that the people of Shushan, when the original decree went out, they were horrified. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. And the Gentile is a non-Jew. So everyone was horrified by the content of that decree. And now with this new decree being sent out and Mordecai being elevated to the position of prime minister or whatever, vice president, in uh, the Persian Empire, rather than Haman, uh, the whole city was excited about it. Needless to say, the Jews were very excited. They had light, and that is uh, kind of a uh, happiness, speaking of happiness, and their heart was lightened uh, because of the decree. They had gladness, joy, and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the Jews of the land or people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. So this was great excitement to receive this decree. You can imagine uh, put in the place of the Jews, the Persian Empire. And now here comes this opportunity to defend ourselves and to defend our families. And so the fear of the Jews fell upon the Persian people in those provinces. So, the, again, the Persian people being a superstitious people, and in this case they're uh, correct in understanding that somebody's up to something here that isn't human. And they recognize that these Jews, uh, in light of these circumstances, these Jews have a God that has started to knock over the first domino, and this thing is, is going. So whoever this God is, who is working this thing, an impossible thing, backwards for the Jewish people, then this God is really something. He's greater than any of the gods that the Persians are, are, are worshiping. And so the fear of the Jews fell upon them as a result of that. We'll see a little bit later that many, many Gentiles, many Persians, then put their faith in the Lord because of his work on behalf of the Jews. They looked at it and said, what am I doing worshiping these false gods that I'm worshiping over here when I can worship a God who will take care of me the way that this God takes care of the Jews? And so they became converts to, uh, to Judaism and following uh, the God of the Bible. So here the Jews are, they're organizing themselves against attack. Uh, they're doing ev- all the logistics, everything that needs to get put into place, everything that they could naturally do. But God adds to the whole scene a supernatural fear upon the people of coming against the Jews so that the people who do ultimately on that day fight against the Jews, I mean, they're fighting even through the fear that God is putting in their hearts not to do this thing. These are severe anti-Semites who are ultimately going to die uh, on that day. But it wasn't because uh, God didn't try and bring them to reason before that happened in chapter 9. 
On the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came. So here is the day for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, and instead the opposite occurred, that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. How many times has this been repeated in history? Just amazing, you know, related to uh, the Jewish people. God is not done with the Jewish people and is a part of his plan between now and, you know, the new heavens and, and the new earth. And so uh, they, their enemies had planned for that day to go one direction, went in the polar opposite direction. And the Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because the fear of them fell upon all of the people. And so God, again, adding on that day uh, his fear factor or respect and all toward people is a hindrance to have them attacking the Jews. And all the officials of the provinces, uh, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's help, They helped the Jews uh, doing the king's work. They helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. So word is out. Mordecai is a Jew. He is the second most powerful man in the empire at this point in time. And so they were concerned for their own jobs and position and power. And and so they came to the defense of the Jews. And so all of these um, anti-Semites that were coming against the Jews on that day, they now they lack even government support for what they're doing. They really are uh, uh, on their own. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai became increasingly prominent. So again, God working in all of this uh, for the uh, salvation of the Jews. And thus the Jews defeated all of their enemies with a stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, all of it in self-defense. And they did what they pleased with those who hated them. In other words, it was a complete uh, victory. And in Shushan, the citadel, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men who had uh, attacked them uh, this, uh, in you know, and honoring the first decree and all. And it lists uh, the ten sons of Haman who had uh, also attacked the Jews. So apparently they held their uh, father's dislike for Jews, hatred of Jews. So on that day, they attacked the Jews in their father's name, probably. And, uh, and, and so they were killed as a result of that. That was their own responsibility. But they, the Jews, did not lay a hand on the plunder. So part of the decree was that they could use self-defense against their enemies and then also take the property of their enemies that, that were killed as a part of kind of a you know, plunder related to the day. That came out of the decree, but the Jewish people in, in, um, uh, in Persia decided we will uh, act in self-defense, but we will not take their property. And it's a noble thing because it really shows that their entire motivation was self-defense and it was not in order to gain any kind of thing materially related to all of it. And on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel was brought to the king. So reports of of what happened on that day brought to him. And the king said to Queen Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the ten sons of Haman. What uh, have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. So he comes in and he says, I want to make, again, probably having feeling a sense of responsibility. This whole thing is where it is, uh, a significant part of the responsibility for it. And he looks and maybe even the number 500, despite all of these obstacles, still 500 
men in the capital city. These are powerful people in the capital city have attempted to uh, annihilate the Jews in Shushan. The number might have surprised uh, King Ahasuerus, and he realized that maybe a little bit more time is going to be needed in order to deal with the issue. And so he leaves it to, uh, to Esther to request whatever she wants for uh, to secure the safety of her people. And then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan, not the rest of the empire, because you can't get messages out to them. And so granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow, according to uh, today's decree, and then let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So give us one more day uh, to allow these that hate us to come against us, to defend ourselves, to in order to as fully as we can eradicate this hatred uh, of the Jews and then let the bodies of uh, dead bodies of Haman's sons be uh, hanged as as a a visual warning uh, against their activities. And so the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered again together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. So they were right. There was a lot more of these folks that were hanging around in addition to the 500, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder and the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces throughout the uh, em, uh, empire, they gathered together and they protected their lives and had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But again, they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was all self-defense. And this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day uh, of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So while in Shushan, they are engaged in a battle for one more additional day, and the rest of the empire, uh, the defeat of uh, the Jews' enemies has been decisive, and the next day becomes already one of great celebration and, uh, and, and great excitement. And therefore, the Jews of the, of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns, they celebrated on the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. So they were very, very excited over all of this. And Mordecai wrote these things, and he sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to establish among them a holiday to commemorate this particular event. He wants the Jewish people to remember forever how God protected them from destruction in their history by Haman. And so he gives this decree here, sending letters to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month was which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy and sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And so this is what he proposes and uh, that this uh, a, a holiday be established related to this as a remembrance. And so the Jews, they accepted the custom uh, which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them because Haman uh, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, again the uh, Persian word for lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, she commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should, not, uh, should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And so they called these days Purim uh, after the name Pur. So you go to, uh, um, let's see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 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 Okay, let's go a little bit further before we go into that. Uh, therefore, because of all the words of this letter, 
what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed this holiday upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instruction and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. And so the establishment of the, uh, the uh, holiday or the festival of Purim, and then we get an idea where it is that the name uh, came from and uh, came out of the event and out of, again, the Persian uh, name for uh, the casting of, of the lots. And so no matter where the Jews were, anywhere in the land, anywhere in the whole wide world, every generation, uh, no matter who, no exceptions and all, the decree went out that this would be the agreement of the Jewish people that this is going to be a perennial um, uh, feast or festival that we're going to keep. And today, uh, the Jews keep the Feast of Purim. Some of you know that, but others of you might not know that. We've um, had the privilege of being over in Israel while this feast or this particular uh, remembrance has, has gone on as they are celebrating Purim. And uh, it is quite a celebration. It is a two-day celebration. And uh, what happens is on the 13th day, they kind of stretch it to three days, 13th day, the day that they were supposed to be exterminated, uh, all of the Jews uh, will go to the synagogue and the uh, book of Esther is read uh, to them. And then they go home. It's a subdued day. And then the following day, the 14th day, they return to the synagogue and the uh, the book of Esther is read once again, but it's a little more lively service. Whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they're allowed to say, let him not live. And, you know, so they kind of jump in related to booing and hissing and that kind of thing. And then every time that Mordecai's name is mentioned, you know, there's kind of a, uh, something good is said. So very much a, uh, you know, an interactive reading of the book of Esther that goes on. And then when they leave that time at the synagogue, then the rest of that 14th day is a time given over to great meal, getting together, just like a holiday would be here, feasting, gifts, celebration. And then it carries over into uh, the uh, 15th day as well. And so you go over to Israel and say, how do they celebrate that? Well, today it looks like Halloween over there, actually, um, at least with the kids. You see them there. You, you, you say, well, look, look at there. We're, we're celebrating the Feast of Purim. You know, the guide will tell us and all. And all the kids are um, dressed up in like Halloween costumes. But they're, you know, so they've got like Transformer and some of them are Queen Esther and that kind of stuff. So, but it's a time of celebration. They have a little cookie. We've, we, whenever it's that time of the year and we're over there, with with a tour, we'll buy a couple of big boxes of cookies, and they're called Haman's ears, and um, they're really quite delicious. Uh, he's not worthy of how good those cookies are, and filled uh, with dates, uh, date paste, or uh, chocolate, and th that kind of thing. But it's all a part uh, of of the celebration, and so uh, all of that goes on to this very day. And this is the origin of, uh, of Purim for the Jewish people. I think that it's just established as a day to remember uh, the greatness of God, the grace of God, his protection, how he preserved them as a people. I really like what Warren Wearsby says about uh, this, uh, these days of Purim and, and how uh, a Christian is, can, can view them. And I think it's very helpful. So I'm going to read you a short paragraph from his, uh, his book. He said, well, Purim is not a Christian festival. Christians certainly ought to rejoice with their Jewish friends because every spiritual blessing we have has come through the Jews. 
The Jews gave to the world the knowledge of the true and living God, the scriptures and the Savior. The first Christians were Jewish believers, and so were the first missionaries. Jesus was a Jew who died on Passover, a Jewish feast day, rose again uh, from the dead on another Jewish holy day, the Feast of First Fruits. The Holy Spirit came from heaven upon a group of Jewish believers on a Jewish holiday, Pentecost. Salvation is from the Jews, quoting John 4.22. If there had been no Jews, there would be no church. And so uh, it is a, a, a good festival to celebrate and to look at even as a Christian and this great deliverance of the Jews uh, by, uh, by the Lord and to join in with any Jewish people in celebrating uh, that particular uh, day. So uh, uh, beautiful how all of it uh, uh, came together, and that's why uh, it exists today. And then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai then sent letters to all the Jews. And so now it's kind of officially with Queen Esther's approval here. Now it goes out to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at the appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. And so the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. And so the formal establishment uh, of the feast. And then a, a summary now of uh, all we need to know about the reign of King Ahasuerus related to Mordecai, at least from a biblical standpoint, is included here in these three verses. And King Ahasuerus, he imposed tribute on the land, taxed the land and taxed his whole kingdom and on the islands of the sea. So whether it was a land-based part of his kingdom or island-based, he taxed them. Uh, there are many who believe that uh, this uh, system of taxation was established in the Persian Empire uh, under the influence of Mordecai. Now, we're mortified by taxes, and so how can this be a good thing? Well, in the ancient times, uh, group, uh, ancient empires, including the Persian Empire, they fed their coffers, their, their means of income, and sustaining their empire and enlarging them, their empire came basically through conquest. And so the uh, defeat of other people, stripping them of their wealth, subjecting them, using them as slave labor, whatever it might be, to further the greatness of, of the empire. So this was characteristic of, of ancient empires. And so there are many who believe that in light of the mention here, in, in the context of Mordecai, that he uh, approached uh, Xerxes or Ahasuerus and suggested that a means of fair taxation be put in place rather than always going to war in order to fund you know, the operating costs of the empire or of the government. And now in verse 2, we have a summary of the greatness of Mordecai. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren. And he used his high position, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all of his countrymen, Jew and Gentile alike. It's a wonderful encapsulation of uh, how to properly use, for a child of God to properly use high office in a country uh, for the glory of, uh, of God. So we come to the end of this wonderful little book, uh, the book of Esther. Again, and I want to remind us as we began the book that it is unique with the Song of Solomon as being one of only two books in the entire Bible where there is no formal mention of the name of God. But to realize that, no, that was not an oversight on the part of the Holy Spirit, 
but it was it was done in order to illustrate the whole point of the book. And the point of the book is this, is that God is always at work, whether we recognize it or not. He is always active in human history, in his providence and in his sovereignty, in his almightiness. So very often he's hidden from our sight. His activity is hidden, but he is always active. And sometimes it isn't until later that we see the fingerprints and we go, what are the odds? Of course, what was I thinking to question you, Lord, or to wonder or to lose my peace over this issue or whatever uh, it it might be? And so the Lord, as we see in this uh, book, so often the Lord works so supernaturally, naturally, it is, it's not a miracle. Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. It's not some obvious thing like this. It, it just looks like circumstances are falling into place. And then we realize they aren't just falling into place. Again, you look at what's, you know, here, here is a Ahasuerus. He has insomnia. And then they, the historian brings the books. He brings the exact book that mentions Mordecai. Haman happens to be walking into the palace first thing in the morning at just the time that the king is wanting to bless Mordecai. You say, what are the odds? All these things line up like that. Well, they aren't odds at all. It's, it's the sovereign hand of God. And there's just something wonderful about, and it's a place of great peace for the child of God, is to rest in the providence and in the sovereignty of God. And to realize in these circumstances that we all find ourselves in sooner or later in life, can't make heads or tails of it. Circumstances are a great threat to us in one way or another. And to realize that the Lord is at work in this situation. He is active, even if I can't see him at the moment. And that what he is doing is a good thing. And maybe we'll get a chance to see that in this life, or maybe the life to come. And to me, the book of of Esther is this wonderful illustration of that very, very famous verse in the New Testament, the promise of Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good. God is working all the time related to his people, to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. And so he may be out of sight at the moment, but and, and we can't see him and recognize him. But he has uh, he has his focus on us completely interest in that. I'll confess that um, every moment of time I have ever spent worrying as a Christian has been a complete waste of time. When enough time has passed for me to finally see and understand in some small measure what God was actively doing all of the time. And, I, and, and what you do is, is we you know, walk with the Lord year after year after year after year. It, it produces a determination in my heart. And it's the reason that the message of the book of Esther means so much to me is a determination to say, Lord, however much time we have before you return or you take me to be with you on my own, I don't want to waste time in that whole realm of worrying on things. I want to rest in your providence. I want to rest in your sovereignty and in your activity and the fact that not one of your promises will ever be proven untrue related to my life, just as it was with the Jews. God had said, I'm concerning the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so he was faithful to his word to them. He will be just as faithful uh, in his his promises to each of us. I'm going to see if I can find this one. uh, Here's a quote that I think is interesting related to all this. A number of years ago, there was a Soviet Jew who was asked by a Westerner 
what he thought would be the outcome of the USSR at, at that time if they stepped up its anti-Semitic policies. And uh, the Soviet Jews said, oh, probably a feast. And when he was asked for an explanation, the Jewish man said, Pharaoh tried to wipe out the Hebrews and the result was Passover. Haman tried to exterminate the people and the result was Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to do us in and the result was Hanukkah. God is so funny in how he does things. And the same thing is true related to our lives. I just wanted to just settle before we head out and grab our kiddos if we, and, and head to the car and head out into the night and in, into the week. The situation that is going on in your life. And if all is quiet on the Western Front, then praise the Lord. Just remember it for a future day. God is in control. He is active. And he is working in a way in your life in this situation that if you saw the whole picture the way that he does, you would not take, you would not think to be able to improve upon it with our suggestions to him. The reason that we have the God that we have and, and he is the God that he is, is he wants us to rest in him. The Bible says that underneath are the everlasting arms. He's not going to drop us. He's not going to fail us. And so the beauty of the message of this passage, the Bible says concerning God's ways as opposed to our ways. I'm, I've, I'm, I don't really say I never say it in prayer. I'll probably do it tomorrow now. But I never say it in prayer, and I certainly don't say it out loud to God. God, listen, what in the world are you doing, and what are you thinking, everything? And we should have gone left over here and right, and anybody could see that. I mean, this thing is just getting worse before it gets better, and I don't know that it's going to get better. You know, you've got, we've got all of these suggestions. God gives us a simple answer. He says, listen, your ways are not my ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much higher my ways are than your ways. And that's all we need to know. And then to sit down, take a deep breath, and allow him the time to show that that is the truth about the situation that we're in, and he will prove it to be so. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for this little book. Thank you for what it does in our lives. Thank you for how it warms our hearts. It does such a beautiful, devotional and relational thing inside of us. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, as your people in this little church and this community, from this room, we give you praise for our little, comparatively little experiences compared to this history of the Jews. But the times that you have stepped in, the times where we thought you were not active, that we were in a free fall, and then to be able to look back and see that what you were doing was much larger than we could have imagined and far more beautiful and far greater than anything we could have ever suggested to you or imagined. We thank you for being our God, and we thank you and ask you tonight to give in each one of our hearts, as is needed, a supernatural ability to rest in you, to be all of this in our lives and in our situations, not only today, but for the rest of the days of our pilgrimage. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.